Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another episode of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 21st. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show of the week. I've got a great lineup for you today. And the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights... Dr. Paul talks about breaking the chains of 1913, the income tax, the Federal Reserve, and Empire. I'll have a little addition to that one myself. Again, Dr. Paul on that. Damick Adams from the Dr. Paul crew will talk about how the CDC vax vote is really about shielding manufacturers from any liability forever. And it is. I'll reinforce that. And Chris Rossini will talk about how, uh, aware, how, how much you should beware if they even hint at pricing controls, how bad that is. Jeff Lawton will talk about using reed beds to clean gray water or even black water. Amy Dingman will uh, talk about how great homeschool really is, but how there's no guarantee of success. It may not be right for your kiddo. I've talked to people who said, we tried it, it didn't work for us. I think that's the minority, but it's always possible. It's always possible. Doc Bones uh, will take a question I never even thought about. You know those things out there that crawl around on the ground? Snakes? A lot of people are terrified of them. Some of them are actually venomous, not poisonous. There's no poisonous snakes. They're venomous snakes. And um, if you F around and find out the hard way, or you have a legitimate bite. I had a legitimate bite in my past from a copperhead. It was no fun. They will use a thing called antivenom. In the United States, unless it's a coral snake or some exotic that got out, it will be antivenom known as crofab. Uh, you can actually get your hands on antivenom for canines. Could you use that for a human if you had to? We'll talk to Doc. We'll have Doc Bones talk about that. Uh, uh, Doctor Ken Berry will back clean up as the second doctor in a row and answer the question: How could something like sausage have sugar in the ingredients list like three times dextrose, corn syrup, etc. in one thing and say it has zero carbs per serving? Uh, Ken has a great answer on that. I have like a, a, a boop, boop, warning, warning, Will, Will Robinson to add to it, though. And then I'm going to answer a question somebody emailed to me. person did really good lately, said, you know, not everybody's losing money. I sold off a part of a business, and I got a bunch of money. What would you do with a bunch, a few mil or more right now, Jack? You're bankrolling this as a windfall. What would you do with it? I have an answer for that that will... Well, it'll hopefully make you and the gentleman asking the question really think. Before we jump into all this, I just want to remind you guys, we do have a couple sponsors of today's show. Uh, John Bush from Live Free Academy will be uh, soon running an awesome webinar. How soon? Today. Now, the good news is this is an expert council Q&A show, and there's a chance you're listening to it before that webinar goes live uh, at 11 a.m. Central Daylight Time today. Because I pre-record the expert council shows on Thursday. They usually go out at like 8 in the morning. So you still have a chance to sign up for that webinar today uh, at Live Free Academy. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Today's show notes will have a link. The other thing you'll notice is there's a banner for it 
right near the top of the banner stack as well if you're on desktop. I don't know that you always see them on uh, mobile devices, but you can find uh, a link over to that in today's show notes, which again, of course, is episode 3188. The other thing I want to remind you about, I talked about it yesterday, but I want to talk about it again today because, you know, the Kickstarters run out of time, just like John's thing is. Paul Wheaton's Garden Master Kickstarter is amazing. I know I talked about it yesterday, so I won't say much more about it today, but this is one, I mean, he has smashed stretch goal after stretch goal after stretch goal after stretch goal, which means if you're backing at a hundred bucks or more, the value of what you get as a backer just keeps going up and he's got more stretch goals coming. But I am excited about just the course itself. I did the early bird, so I got all the extra goodies. But Helen is amazing. There's not a lot of people, when they do a course on something like gardening, that I'm like, I want to sit down and listen to every minute of that. She's the gal that I do want to do that. So I'm excited about that. And just to make things end quicker today, uh, I'm going to go ahead and do the item of the day up front, same as yesterday. It is the pork rind breadcrumbs from uh, Porking Good Pork. King Good uh, Pork Rind Breadcrumbs. I'll just say today, I love these things. If you want to hear more about them, you can listen to yesterday's segment on it where I talked about all the things that you can do with them. But basically, if you can use regular breadcrumbs, you can use these. You stay keto uh, or carnivore, either or, uh, and they taste delicious. And if you're cooking for somebody that ain't keto, it won't matter. They'll love them anyway. So uh, check them out, and uh, you can always help support us how Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And with that, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that order. But money for it to have worked for thousands of years, they uh, had a uh, unit of account, uh, and they had something of real value like gold and silver. It's uh, all the way back to biblical times. This was, this was a known uh, issue that uh, you were supposed to have honest weights and, and measures. The unit of account uh, should be a weight of something, and if it is, then the government has a lot of more trouble, you know, uh, going into a fiat system and passing out the money to their favorite people. Right now, all this uh, uh, inflation, monetary inflation, is going to the wealthy. They benefit, but the average person gets stuck with the higher end cost of living. Well, one thing now I think is amazing and good is more and more people are saying, why are we sending $67 billion to Ukraine to fight a war? I thought, I thought we learned a lesson in Vietnam. Well, that was short-lived. I thought we learned, I, I thought we learned a lesson in Iraq. Well, that, yeah, they did that for 20 years. They finally got tired of that. Oh, Afghanistan. That's, that's the, where the real war. Uh, that's the important war. Well, after 20 years there, they had to give up on that. So uh, they, they continue to do it. People enrich themselves, and it's all because of the definition of what, what money is. And, uh, but it's part of that system. If you can't define a woman uh, and you, you can't define truth, how are you going to define money? So we're at a, at a crossroads right now. Uh, if this condition continues where you can't even define anything or you might get, uh, uh, you know, uh, canceled for, you might be, lose your jobs and these other things. If that lasts, uh, you, you know, we're in bigger trouble than we think. When did some, when did a lot of this stop? In the progressive era. 1913, we ought to cancel 1913, get rid of the income tax and get rid of the Federal Reserve and get rid of the foreign policy that was established at that time. Believe me, we would all be better off and a lot happier.
The CDC will vote Thursday to permanently shield Pfizer and Moderna, Moderna for, from COVID vaccine injury liability. And that kind of tells the story, but, but the backstory, Dr. Paul, is that CDC and Big Pharma are in a bind. They've been using emergency authorization use vaccines, which under a couple of different acts passed in the time of COVID, give, uh, relieve them of any liability for the downsides of the shots. Uh, and now that we're seeing a lot more stories of vaccine injury, and we had Del Bigtree on the show last week, I think it was, who talked a lot about this database that they were able to get showing enormous amounts of problems with it. So now that that's happening, they want to start selling not the emergency use version, but the Comirnaty, Pfizer does, version, the approved version. And as I understand it, what this means to go from emergency use to approved that would open them up to liability for injury. They will no longer have the protection of emergency use. But there's a loophole, because if you can get the approved version approved on the schedule of immunizations for children, then they retain their immunity from prosecution, from being sued forever. And I think I'm not an expert on this by any stretch, but I would like to turn to someone who I think is. And here's a great short interview with RFK Jr., who was on this show, who spoke at our conference, who's definitely a friend of humanity and liberty. Uh, this is just under a minute, this clip. The emergency use authorization vaccines have liability protection under the PrEP Act and the CARES Act. So as long as you take an emergency use, you can't sue them. Once they get approved, now you can sue them, unless... They can get it recommended for children. What? Because, because all vaccines that are recommended, officially recommended for children, get it liability protection, even if an adult gets that vaccine. That's why they're going after kids. They know this is going to kill and injure a huge number of children, but they need to do it for the liability protection. Nobody should be shocked that the Inflation Reduction Act did nothing to bring down inflation. Um, but one thing that we have to be alert for is uh, if they start talking about price controls, because price controls lead to shortages. And, you know, the government's going to uh, pretend like it's the white knight coming in, but like we're going to stop these businesses from charging so much. But that just messes things up even further. I mean, if let's say the market price of eggs is $5 and the government says you can't charge more than $2. Well, what happens? What happens when there's any type of sale? People will rush to buy more eggs at two bucks. It's a sale. But the producers of the eggs, because of inflation, their costs are still, are still rising, and they can't sell for more than two bucks. So they're, they can't make a profit. So what ends up happening? They pause production. They stop production. Nobody else goes into the business because you can't sell eggs for more than two bucks, government says. And that's how price controls lead to shortages. But, you know, even though that is so basic, there's an angle from people that like power. And that's because when there's empty shelves, then they start rationing. Then they and we could think of COVID of all the stupid rules that they created. Imagine them rationing food. You know, that's, if your Social Security number ends in an odd number, you can get eggs on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And I have a short story because my grandparents lived in Poland during World War Two under the Nazis first and then the Soviets. So I know a bunch of stories. One story, my grandmother said she was coming home from somewhere and she had some meat and she's hiding it in a bag. And uh, on her way home, she notices, you know, a busybody following her. 
So she quickly runs in the house, takes the meat out of the bag, throws it into like a hole that they had near the attic. So this person comes in to check, make sure what's going on in this house, didn't find any meat. So that's the level that government can make people sink to with price controls, with shortages, with rationing. And that's why it has to be nipped in the bud, because if they start talking about price controls, people should rise up against it immediately. So starting with Chris, I completely agree. Pricing controls are bad, but as far as nipping in the bud, government's going to do what the government's going to do. We can we can yell, we can say don't do it, whatever. Most people are going to be like, yeah, yeah, let me let me get some stuff cheaper. And if they do it, they're going to do it, and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's why we prepare in advance, not after the fact. Um, but I completely agree. It's it's something to keep your ears open for, and most people won't. So if they start talking about it in a given area, you might want to front-run things. You might think, well, when the pricing controls kick in, well, then you're going to compete with everybody else for it. It's going to be gone quick. So it might be something to at least keep an eye on. Um, the CDC vote that Dan McAdams is talking about, it will be unanimous. And I knew it was going to happen. And the reason I knew it was going to happen is a book that I've recommended to you guys many times. I practically, when I brought it out on T-SPAS, begged you guys to read it. I offered in a couple instances where I had doctors emailing me about how wrong I was about this vaccine. I offered to buy it for them if they would read it, and they wouldn't do it. And I think it's because when you, when you know somebody's willing to do that, you know what you're going to look at is not what you want to see. And so they didn't want to see it, so they didn't want to know. I question whether or not those people should be doctors, honestly. Uh, because one thing I can say about Robert Kennedy, and there's certainly a lot we disagree about politically when it comes to... Building a case, like an attorney builds a case, he leaves no stone unturned. He doesn't leave a single T not crossed and not a single I not dotted. And and the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, is absolutely, it's true, and I'll tell you how you know it's true. It is so damning that you come away from it believing that whatever life Anthony Fauci has left should be spent in a small room in an orange jumpsuit. I mean, that's the only, and you might think worse. I'll just put it to you that way. And, you know, if somebody wrote a book about me like that, that made millions of dollars claiming all those horrible things about me, I would launch a lawsuit. And I would sue that person for every penny they made on that book for befouling my name and accusing me of multiple felonies and multiple counts of human murder. Okay? That's what anybody would do that was damaged by something that made so much money in a public court of opinion. But... If you did that, then all of this stuff would be litigated and all the evidence would be presented publicly, and, gee, we can't have that. So uh, Fauci is just going to ride off into the sunset. But the reason I say I knew this vote was going to happen is because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says in that book it's going to happen, and for exactly this reason, so that they can be permanently shielded under the Vaccine Protection Act of 1986. So I'm not even surprised. And it's the only reason they're doing it. Because there is no evidence, there is no compelling evidence to make this mandated. And the problem is there's about a dozen states that already have laws on the books that say whatever the CDC says goes on the vaccination schedule goes on the state's vaccination schedule. That's going to be a problem, and that might be a place for local politics if you can get it done. But I'll just tell you, you go on a hole in the ground before you touch my grandkids with that shit. I'll tell you right now. And I'm not, people think I'm anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax. 
I'm anti-experimental mRNA, non-vaccine, that you had to change the definition of a vaccine, mandated bullshit for something that's not a threat to the health of children. At all. That's what I'm anti. On uh, Dr. Paul, I'd like to add one thing to his list of things that happened in 1913. You might find this surprising coming from an anarchist who does not believe in the political process any longer. But part of the reason I don't believe in the political process is it has evolved into a thing that's unworkable. And a big thing happened in 1913 that enabled all of this shit on top of the income tax, the creation of the Federal Reserve, and an empire policy. And that was the removal of the appointment of senators by state legislature. If you put that back the way it was in our... The Constitution, the Constitution. The people of this country were sold a bill of goods and a lie. You should directly elect your senators so you get a bigger say. I'll just put it to you this way. I did the math earlier this year. I could be wrong. It might have been 64, but I believe it was 66. If you look at states right now, it's 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 a, you know like 33 have a republican controlled legislature at a state level so their state senate state house is under republican control on both sides okay if you have that what do you think who do you think they're going to send to DC as a senator you'd have right now a, a, a two-thirds majority or close to a republican senate Right now, even though the House would still be in the hands of the Democrats, which one's more representative? The entire point of the Senate was to give small states an equal say in one of the bodies of, uh, uh, of the Congress. That was the purpose. That was the purpose. And it's been completely destroyed, and it was all part of a plan, and that plan does go back prior to 1913. Including some of the stuff stuff I talked about with Mark Baker yesterday about the demonetization of sil- the cl- crime of 1873 where they demonetized silver. Now I'll say again, one place I disagree with Dr. Paul is gold is not coming back as money. And the problem with gold is mo- there's numerous problems. But one of the problems with gold is money is what we're saying when we want gold is money is government please, if it would please the crown, give us gold backed money again. So you're asking the government to do it. The difference with Bitcoin, I know some of you don't want to hear this, it is self-regulating. It is a self-regulating ecosystem. It doesn't care. People have been trying to bring gold back since 1914. And it has made zero progress. In between that and now it was made illegal to own and then made legal to own again. And the dollar was completely decoupled from it. And then we demonetized silver even further in 1964 by taking it out of change. Metal has failed. You can't move metal around the world at the speed of light. But the bigger thing is, you have to have a third party to make modern transactions possible with metal. You have to. Not you can't. It's not that you can use one if it's convenient. It's that you must. I can't send an ounce of gold from here to Japan without some intermediary third party. So as long as I have that, I have something where basically the state always has a leverage tool against us. And we have to get permission to do it. And it's not self-regulating, and it can be lied about. A government can easily lie about how much gold it has. Don't think they don't do it, okay? Don't think they don't do it. Gold can be made into paper gold that's not backed by actual gold. Don't think they don't do it. And a lot of people that make apologies for silver and gold and say, well, it's being manipulated. But it can be. That's the point. 
That's the point. We can find more. We can dig deeper. You can't make more Bitcoin. And you can move it at the speed of light. You can secure it for zero cost. You can make it as portable as you want with 12 words. And the biggest thing is, no one asked permission. It just, it, people just chose to use it and have made it what it is in about a decade. It's made more progress since it was first conceived of in 2008 than gold, the gold bugs have made from 1914 till 2022. It's made more progress because it works. Just my thoughts on it. Let's go on from there and hear about Greywater from uh, uh, Jeff Lawn. Hi, Jeff here, coming to you from South Africa, um, where I'm teaching PDC courses. And um, there's an inquiry here about grey water. And is it possible to have a grey water system that runs like a creek and then ends up growing trees at the end? Well, I've even seen black water reed beds in the centre of alternative technology. They have a black water reed bed in Wales that runs through and the final um, filtration reed bed runs out onto um, willows and then right onto the edge of a creek where it grows the creekside trees. Um, I've also seen 18 bars, like bars, <laughs> human bars, lined up like a little cascading dropping waterfall, each one with grey water and uh, grey water going in the top. Um, gravel growing reeds then drop into the next one and gravel growing reeds and water plants all the way down 18 bars and at the end clean enough water coming out to for um, stock animals to drink so it would easily grow trees so like I say I've, I've, I've seen black water reed beds growing trees I've seen um, recycled bars as grey water reed beds cascading and dropping down through 18 bars and getting crystal clear water out the other end that uh, uh, animals, horses and cows and sheep can easily drink. So it would very easily grow trees. So I don't think you've any worry at all about doing that with a reed bed system. So the thing there is Jeff basically said, yeah, you can, but he didn't really explain exactly how to do it, and it is a very visual thing. So when I heard this question for Jeff and sent it over to him, I was like, I think Jeff has a really great video showing a complete system built on rebeds with grease traps and everything in it. And it turns out my memory did not mislead me. He does. And I've got a link to it right next to his segment bullet point in the show notes for today. So, again, you can go look that up. Today's episode being... 3188 uh, uh, and you can find that link and watch that video. It's about 10 minutes long and it's really, really good. Next up, let's hear from Amy Dingman on how homeschooling's great, but there's no guarantee that it will be successful for you. Hey, TS Peers, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast, and I'm back to uh, talk about another topic having to do with homeschooling. A comment was recently made to me from a very new homeschooling parent that she was so excited she was going to pull her young kids out of public school because she wasn't going to have to deal with any of those problems anymore. And when I asked what problem she was talking about, she said, kids who don't listen and kids who have issues. And she went on to talk about how excited she was to homeschool and have her kids around other kids who loved learning and kids who were well-behaved and kids who didn't have the emotional struggles that she said so many public school kids do. 
Now, this isn't the first time that I've heard this, and I, I feel like it has something to do with how homeschooling is kind of marketed to the world. So I'm going to give you my buck fifties worth as someone who homeschooled her kids all the way through. And during that time, I met a lot of homeschooled kids and their parents. So the reality of the situation is your homeschooled kids may struggle. They may struggle with math. They may struggle with anxiety or direction in life or anger or social cues or self-esteem or communication or playing nicely or laziness or any number of things. Choosing to homeschool or unschool your kids does not provide them immunity to or from these things. Your kids are human beings and they're going to deal with stuff, just like any of us adults deal with stuff. Your kids are going to deal with stuff too. And the benefit of homeschooling and having more time with your kids is you can be there to help them walk through that, right? But don't fall into the belief that your kids are somehow untouchable by situations or problems simply because you didn't enroll them in public school. Now, the flip side of this is it also means that if you're dealing with issues and you're a homeschooler and you're thinking, I'll just put them back in public school because that's going to solve the issue, that's not necessarily the cure for what they're dealing with, right? It may have nothing to do with where they're going to school, how they're being educated. By choosing to homeschool, you probably have a few more options with how to deal with certain issues than if your kids are in public school, but it doesn't mean there won't be issues. Homeschooling is not a guarantee that everybody you run across in your homeschool co-op is going to love learning or be super well-behaved or that they're going to believe everything that your family believes or that they're homeschooling for the same reasons your family is homeschooling. I remember going to a homeschool co-op way back in the day when my kids were pretty little and there was a kid there who had been pulled out of public school because the mom felt that the public school couldn't deal with his emotional and behavioral issues. So this kid had a lot of issues. They were dealing with these issues. And now he was at our homeschool co-op and his emotional and behavioral issues were definitely causing issues in that group. And there were people who couldn't deal with the issues that he was bringing to the group. But just because you're not in public school doesn't mean you're not going to deal with those issues, right? I bring it up because there there are people out there who go into homeschooling thinking it's this exclusive club, and it's not. Anybody can decide to homeschool, you guys, right? And some of the kids are being homeschooled because they can't handle public school. Some of the kids are there because their parents can't handle public school. Here's the other thing. Some of the people that y'all talk about that you can't stand, who drive you nuts, right, and who live their lives in ways that you don't agree with, some of those people are choosing to homeschool. And you're probably going to run into them and you're going to have to deal with them. Homeschooling is not an exclusive club for people who love learning and have really well-behaved kids. I have known homeschooling families who are dealing with a lot of stuff, and it has nothing to do with the fact that their kids do or don't get on the big yellow bus. So let's make sure that when we're looking at making that decision to homeschool our kids, that we're being honest and realistic about what homeschooling means. It means you're changing who their teacher is. It means 
you're changing the topics they might learn about or get to learn about, and you're, you might be changing the time that they can devote to those topics if they're super interested in them. You are probably changing the amount of control that you have over how things are dealt with to a certain extent. And you might have more control over your kids' surroundings or their community to a certain extent. But you are not annihilating every issue they might come upon just because you don't put them on the bus. There are homeschooled kids with anxiety and depression. There are homeschooled kids who become teenage mothers or fathers. There are homeschooled kids who still deal with all sorts of things that some people are out there trying to sell homeschooling as the cure for. Okay? So if you are currently making the decision to homeschool or trying to decide if that's right for your family, please make sure that you are choosing it for the right reasons and that you're being realistic about the world that you're walking into. It's not an exclusive club. It's not a little place of perfection. Your kids are still going to deal with issues. You're still going to deal with difficult families and difficult children Homeschooling is part of life, right? So you're still going to deal with all of that stuff. You might be able to deal with it in a different way, but you're still going to deal with it. So there you go. That's my buck 50 for today. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me at amy at com. You can also send questions about homeschooling or family, whatever you want to talk about. Send them to Jack and I will get them answered here on the Expert Council. Have a great week. So a couple add-ons to that. You know, we've dealt with things like kids spacing out and not paying attention while the lesson's going when we're using Excellus. They're playing with a toy or something. or And we've done some things to to make that less uh, frequent, whereas we, we separate the two of them. We don't let them sit directly next to each other uh, when they're doing their school. Sometimes we do, and if, it's, if it becomes a problem, then we separate them. Another thing I did is I put uh, both of them into using headsets so that they don't have all the distraction of all the other noise going on. And we got to keep an eye on them. One of the little tricks that uh, Braylon figured out, many of you guys use it listening to podcasting, is you can set the speed faster, uh, but and if he was getting A's when he did it, I wouldn't care, but it ends up being that he, he misses information. So we have to kind of check on I explained to him what a key logger was, and even though I'm not going to put it on his device, he's afraid now that I may have already done so. So he's a little less likely to go cheating uh, and things like that. So, like, you deal with all these things, but I, I, I sat down with my wife when she was really upset about it one day. I said, you don't think that every single kid that walks into public school doesn't do the same shit? I mean, I made a career out of doing it in high school. I made a career out of not paying attention and looking like I was. Then the other side of this is, I will say that sometimes maybe it's not the right solution for everybody. I think that it can be, but can be and is are different. And, and I want to be real clear about something. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of doing this. I say all the time, get your kids out of their schools. And I think even if you can't do homeschooling, you should try to see if there's any way feasible to get them out of these types of schools. People are using uh, schools that are religious schools. One of the people that wrote me said, I'm doing that. It's a Catholic school, but it's not really a Catholic school. They're like using the shield so that they can run basically. It's just a school, and it's a private school. Whatever. Just improve the situation if you can. Because I've had people tell me, well, I, you know, we tried it and I had to send them back. And it's almost like they're being apologetic to me. Please never think that I think less of you because you're using what you have to use in the situation that you're in. 
I'm just really an advocate for don't shut down the possibility. because. And if you think about it, I'm an advocate for that in everything. I always say, stop saying you can't and start asking how can I. School is just with your kids is just one place that I say to apply that that concept or that idea. And the reason I've been so hot on it is what's happening to so many children in so many schools right now. And I think that one of the big problems is you might go to your school and say, well, they're not doing this to my kids because they don't have drag queens in the cafeteria for story hour or whatever. And that's good that at least it's not. But how... How much of all this really complete lunacy, the grooming, the drag queens, the gender pronouns, all of it, will take a school that's actually doing some pretty bad stuff and make it look pretty good, because at least they're not doing that. Uh, School sucked before this started, uh, public school. School has been causing problems for our kids for a lot longer than the last three years. And so try, but if it does work, and as long as you're there to be a good guide alongside it, I get it. And never feel that you have to justify it to anybody, because you know. Next up, we have uh, one from Doc Bones on antivenom that's made for canines and substituting it for humans in an emergency. Is that possible? A good idea? A bad idea? What say you, Doc Bones? Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from John, who writes, In an emergency, can dog antivenom be used on humans? Just heard a neighbor dog was bit by a baby rattlesnake. The antivenom from the vet was $800 a vial. I refer antivenom for humans to deal with a rattlesnake bite is between five and ten thousand dollars. Wondering if they're the same or different. John. John, I write about survival in austere settings where things like human or animal antivenoms, more commonly known as antivenin, with an I-N instead of an O-M for some reason, are unlikely to be available to the family medic, regardless of the cost. But I'll tell you what I know. Human snake antivenom is indeed as expensive as you mentioned. A couple of years ago, a 17-year-old was bitten by a copperhead snake in North Carolina. Although about 30% of venomous snake bites don't inject significant amounts into the victim, his hand started to swell immediately, a sure sign he needed help. He was indeed given antivenin and hospitalized overnight at Duke University's medical center. The family got the bill a few weeks later. How much do you think it was? $225,000. The line item for the antivenom alone cost $200,000, which is the cost for 12 vials. Thankfully, with his dad's insurance, the family only had to pay $175. Still pretty amazing. Apparently, there aren't a lot of companies that make antivenom. Plus, it's complicated to make. A common antivenom used to treat rattlesnake bites, for example, is made by injecting sheep or horses with snake venom, making them hyperimmunized, and then harvesting the antibodies produced by the animal's immune systems. But the cost of making antivenom only accounts for about one-tenth of one percent of the total cost of the treatment. The rest of the sticker price is made up by costs such as licensing fees, hospital markups, and indeed legal liability costs. Human snake antivenom is actually not available for sale to the general public, but animal antivenom is. It can be found in 10 milliliter single doses at olivet.com 
for less than 300 bucks. It's meant to handle snake bite incurred in dogs from all pit vipers, a family which includes rattlesnakes, copperheads, and cottonmouths, also known as water moccasins. Antivenins that handle different species bites are called polyvalent. Polyvalent. Remember that. I'm going to mention it later. So you might think that while a single dose for an animal the size of a dog might not be enough, maybe a number of doses might work for a human adult. I've mentioned the use of certain aquarium antibiotics in survival settings as they're identical to their human counterpart in dosage, even using the same identification colors and numbers on the capsules. So I'm open to this type of thing in general. But that's not the case with animal antivenins. These don't go through the same purification process used for human versions, and that leads to a surprising number of cases of anaphylactic shock. A British study suggests that severe systemic anaphylaxis rates can be as high as 40% with antivenins. Worse, oral antihistamines and hydrocortisone don't prove effective in controlling the acute reactions. Only epinephrine-type EpiPens seem to prevent these sometimes life-threatening effects. So the management of anaphylactic shock is as big an issue as the treatment of the effects of the venom itself. This may be occurring because of the antivenin's polyvalent nature. More sometimes unnecessary foreign proteins must be injected to treat the same amount of venom in these as you're covering more than one species of snake. Not only that, the companies that manufacture veterinary antivenin are not as worried about their purification process as those that are more tightly regulated to produce human antivenin. If you lose an animal, they'll replace it. If you lose a human, well. So there is more risk to using veterinary antivenin. John, I would look at it this way. Although there are several thousand venomous snake bites every year in the U.S., deaths are very rare. In fact, in the U.S., only one death has occurred from snake bite this decade, and that was an 80-year-old bitten by a captive snake. Unless you're a snake handler, the money you would spend on antivenin, even animal antivenin, and the EpiPens to prevent anaphylaxis from giving it, might be better spent on supplies to treat more common injuries, such as bleeding and other trauma. You'll get more bang for the buck, that's for sure. This is Joel and MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of essential books, quality medical kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I'll just say that today's antivenom, it has gone through more purification than antivenom from even 30 years ago. And there is, there was a point, though, in history, and it's not that long ago, that the Crofab, which is the multi-pit viper uh, antivenom, and it is specifically really for the pit vipers we have in North America and some in South America that are very similar. So, for instance, the fertile ants uh, antivenom is, 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 would, would be a Crofab, uh, where there are some other vipers in the world that Crofab may not be the best for. Um, but what's given to dogs today in the 1960s was what we used for people. And antivenom reaction and anaphylactic shock is a risk, even in a hospital, with the very best human-grade stuff. It, it really is. They're not the same anymore. But that risk is always there. And one of the important things would be, if you were going to be administering antivenom, is to know to do a test before actually administering it, because the... If you die of antivenom, it didn't help you survive or even deal with the symptoms of the bite, if you understand, right? So that's usually done with a very small amount injected under the skin, because uh, 
contrary to what the TV tells you, it's not like you only have seconds to act before the person falls over and dies, especially the snakes we have in the United States. Um, and of the pit vipers, again, uh, there's there's not one there that's going to kill you very quickly, and I don't know unless maybe it latched onto your carotid artery or your jugular vein. Um and really did a number on you, too. So you have time. So you, you do basically a skin test, and you look for a reaction. And if there's a significant reaction, you don't administer the antivenom. And that was protocol back in the 60s. Um, and, and as far as I know, again, the antivenom that they're today given to dogs is pretty much about the same stuff they were given to people in the 60s and early 70s. I still wouldn't do it. And the most important thing, if you're worried about snake bites, is don't get bit, because don't be stupid and you won't get bit. The vast majority of people who are bit by snakes in the United States are young men between the age of about 15 and 40, and they're bit on the hand or the lower arm or the finger. What does that mean? That most of them messed with the snake that they shouldn't have messed with. The, the next largest group are people that are bit walking around on their porch or something like that with bare feet and little copperheads are coming up from the creeks or whatever, something like that. Or they reach into a hand bite again, but it's a legitimate hand bite. They reach into a flower pot. Some areas are really high in populations of a little snake called a pygmy rattler. It's a little snake. You don't want to get bit by it. And because it's little, it's got a, uh, well, it's got a, a Napoleon complex. It's, a, it's an aggressive little prick, and it will you get people on the finger and stuff. But... All of these bites are highly treatable, especially if you're anywhere close to uh, being able to get first aid. So learn proper, uh, I mean, I mean uh, supported uh, medical treatment from a hospital or what have you. And I, I, I hate killing snakes, but if you get bit by a snake and you can, without getting bit by the snake again, kill the snake and take it to the doctor, that's probably a good idea. Because doctors don't listen when people are bit. They'll say stupid shit like, oh, it looks like a dry bite to me. You can't look at a bite and tell if it's dry. You can tell it's definitely that they, you definitely had a venom injection, but you can't tell that it's a dry bite. That takes time. If there's no reaction whatsoever, it may be a dry bite. But you'll also say, well, I got bit by a copperhead, and the doctor will say, well, I don't think it's a copperhead bite. Well, as long as it's a copperhead or a rattlesnake, you get the same antivenom anyway. But they may not. I'm just saying, it's better to be able to say, here it is. Uh, I won't go through my story that I've told a couple times again with a copperhead, but I, I dealt with that. The, the doctor didn't believe it was a copperhead because of the size of the bite because it was very large for a copperhead in the area. And, and the, I got a really good dose in the calf that I didn't like. Anyway, that's just a little add on that one. Uh, let's hear about sugar and sausage and then the sausage being zero carb per serving. What's up with that? Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question for Dave today. Dave says, how can sausage with three different kinds of sugar in the ingredients have zero carbs and zero added sugar? Uh, he bought a Walmart brand pre-cooked sausage patties, and on the ingredients list, it listed sugar, corn syrup, and dextrose, all of which are, in fact, sugar. How the hell can this happen and still not be added sugar? That's a good question, Dave. And so two things I want to talk about. Very often sugar in various forms. And as you guys may know, there's a hundred different words that food manufacturers can use on their ingredient list for sugar. And so in this case, sugar, corn syrup, and dextrose are all sugar. And I think federal law should change and they should have to combine all these sugars so that it, it just is sugar on the ingredient list. And that would also bump it up 
on the percentage of it contained in the product. But if the sausage has zero grams of carbs, what that really means, according to federal law, is that it contains less than 0.9 grams of carbs, which for most people in most sausages, that's fine. Uh, like I said, very often sugar is used in the curing process and doesn't really appear to any significant degree in the finished sausage. Uh, so this brings me to my second point, which is the dose makes the poison for very many things in our life. You may or may not know that uh, there's a there's a degree of arsenic in your diet every day. There's a you ingest fluoride in your diet, even if you're drinking spring water. Uh, there are gut bacteria in your gut that make alcohol every day of your life. But all these things occur in such minuscule amounts that it's it's really irrelevant to the big picture of your overall health. And so your your job in order to attain optimal health is to minimize these poisons. If you have a, a gin and soda with lime once a month, that's probably not going to impact your health that much. But if you have three mixed drinks every night, even if they're zero carb, that's going to that's going to harm your health. It's the, the amount of ingested poison. And so all you guys need to be minimizing your sugar intake. So I'm not implying that sugar is some kind of acute toxin that if you ingest one grain of sugar, it's going to kill you. That's that's not true. Sugar in quantity is going to raise your blood sugar and raise your insulin. And so you want to minimize the amount of sugar you get in your diet. And in this case, I think this sausage is perfectly fine and edible for human beings. I would absolutely come over to your house, Dave, and have breakfast with you and eat this sausage along with the eggs that we would also have. So don't worry about these tiny amounts of sugar. Always buy the lowest carb version of sausage or any other processed meat that you can find with the lowest amount of total carbohydrates. But don't sweat it if there's a tiny amount of sugar in these products. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Ken said, but I'll throw one little adder on with the whole zero carb thing. If you're living a carnivore lifestyle and you eat some sausage and it's got some sugar in it and it's such a little amount of sugar that one... One serving has less than one carb, and it's probably right at .9 because they'll make the serving match the zero carb, especially in this day and age when people are paying attention to carbs. Um, you, you, you just really need to look at it. You ate one carb per serving. That's how you need to look at it. And, again, if you're doing a carnivore or even ketovore, it's probably not ever going to add up to enough unless the serving is like, a quarter ounce or something stupid. Usually a serving of sausage is like uh, four ounces, a quarter pound, right? So, you know, a pound then would be four carbs. No big deal. And if you ate two pounds of carb uh, sausage, which is a lot, but some of us will, uh, that would be uh, eight, eight carbs. Which, again, if you're trying to stay under 20 carbs a day and you're not really getting any other carbs, it wouldn't be that big a deal. If you're more of a keto diet person and you're actually tracking your carbs and your goal is to stay under 20 net carbs a day and you're not eating crap like low-carb bread, low-carb tortillas and all that lie because their net carb number is bullshit. If when I, when I say you're doing net carbs, you're trusting broccoli and cauliflower and taking the fiber out of those, you can trust that. That's legit. And you're getting up in the 18, 20 carb range 
maybe a little over once in a while, and you add another eight carbs you didn't count, now it can start to shove you in the back. So you just need to be aware of that. And you need to always look at labels. I'm very glad this question came in because I meant somebody read a label. That's really important. Because there's some stuff out there that you would intuitively think, well, this is just great. I don't have to worry about carbs at all with this. So you're standing in line at Home Depot or Lowe's, and you're getting kind of peckish, and you I want a little something, something. And you see that bag of gummy bears, and you think, ah, I ain't had none in a while. And you pick it up, and you look at it, and something like 49 carbohydrates are serving two in the bag. You're like, no, nah, no, I'll put it back in. I know I'll get the, the beef jerky. So you get the bag of beef jerky, and you say it's beef jerky. A typical, like, not the little tiny bag, but the typical, like, you know, bag that you buy, not the big jumbo bag either, has more carbs than a can of Coke and more calories on top of having more carbs than a can of Coke because they drench the shit in sugar. And Ken's right. They have all these different words, dextrose powder, you know. That's sugar. Sucrose. That's sugar. They should have to say sugar, but they don't. But you need to know what sugar is, right? Fructose corn syrup. That's sugar. High fructose. That's sugar. So do pay attention to it, but also, as Ken said, you know, just don't worry too much about ant. Like, oh, my God, there's a carb in there. It's okay. There's a carb in a duck egg. A single duck egg has one carbohydrate. Many people don't know that because chicken eggs don't have any carbohydrates. I, I don't worry about that one carbohydrate. But when I was in loss mode and I was, you know, tracking my carbs, I did count it. And if I had two duck eggs, I put in my little app two carbs, just something to think about. Uh, next up, I got a question I want to finish up with, and I'm not going to go real long on this one, but I think it's an interesting question, and I'm going to answer it the only way I really can. So Marty wrote me, and this is what Marty said, what would you do in today's economy with a windfall of cash? Limited details are, I sold a piece of our business and wanted your take on what to do with the proceeds. It could be the same if I were an inheritance or a lotto win, I guess. The amount is big, and no, I'm not looking for investment advice, but I thought it would be interesting at your opinion on what you think the economy has had long term, and what would you do if you had a large pile of cash right now? Many of us did very well over the last few years, and may be sitting on some or a lot of cash. But what we do with it, with so many uncertainties in the current market, you often say the rich got rich during bad markets. What say you? Thanks, Marty. So, I mean, the rich got rich in bad markets by a lot of times building businesses. It sounds like you've done that and you've cashed in. What I would do with a big chunk of cash rate now overall is absolutely nothing. That's what I would do with cash rate. It's, you know, inflation's 8% or whatever, but the reality is, Shit's fixing to go down by a lot more than 8%. So before I plowed into more investments in the market, I would wait for shit to go down. Before I went out and bought another house, I would wait for the market to fall further because if I've got that much cash, I can go in and buy the property for cash. Right? I, I, this is what I look at. Your inflation over the next, and you probably unfortunately don't have to wait more than a year to see the other side of this. The inflation you'll eat over that six months while you wait for the right opportunity to present itself is your opportunity cost. And if it's an 8% inflation rate, then it's a 4% opportunity cost over six months. And you're probably ahead doing nothing. So that's my base level advice. Now, when the opportunity presents itself, what would, be, what would I be looking for? This is where I don't know if Marty's going to like the answer because I have to give an honest answer. And honest answers sometimes aren't what people want to hear. 
If I had a big chunk of money, Jackistan level chunk of money, let's say five, ten million bucks sitting around, and that would be the kind of money that would make me look at my place here and go, even though I love Nine Mile Farm, I think that I can do a little bit better in my life than this with that kind of extra money sitting around. The investment I would make would be in property. Now, it doesn't mean I would necessarily run out right away, but I would probably try to find myself something in the neighborhood of 25 to 50 acres. And then the reason I'd be doing that is I'd want to put a few ponds in. I know this is not sounding like investment advice even a little bit or like where the economy's going, but it'll all make sense in a second. Because I'd like to have two or three or more ponds, a couple half acres, maybe one big two-acre lake, beautiful point on it, beautiful house. And with that kind of money, I'd probably set about a million-dollar budget. And where I live, without going very far from where I am, I can pull this off. I might have to go a little bit, but it'd be worth it. And I'd probably put a little place on it, and I'd probably lease it, for a very small amount of money to my son and my daughter, daughter-in-law and my grandkids, and I'd have them on the other side of the property where they, we don't have to see them, but we can anytime we want to. And when they came to homeschool, they would walk across the property and see the ducks and skip some rocks on the pond and, and, and come over to our place. And that's what I would do with about one to one and a half million dollars of, of, let's say, five million bucks. I would definitely buy some Bitcoin, and I mean, I would do, I said wait for stuff to go down, Bitcoin may go down. I would probably ease into it over the next few months because it could still have another dip. Traditional low would be 14, but I think 19 is an incredible low, and I would probably drop. I'm not going to give a number, but a significant chunk into it, and I'd probably hold most of the rest of it in cash, waiting for the opportunity that is going to come when the world realizes what it's done to itself. And I know I bring a lot of people on the Bitcoin breakout who talk about how cash is going to go to zero, and not tomorrow, though. Not tomorrow, and that would keep diversification in what I'm doing, and that's probably what I would do. And I and I'm and I would take that approach because if I buy a house or develop or build a house that is the place I want to live until I die, and it's paid for, I don't give two shits what the underlying value of that house is ever again. I don't care. I, I'm partly there with this house right now. I was explaining to my wife yesterday. It's worth about a half a million. We owe 150,000 on it. This real estate crash could drive the value of it down to 200,000 or less, and we won't care. But if somebody had bought it from me yesterday, they would, and they'd be trapped with it, or they'd have to abandon it if they had a bad situation. And so I would be putting myself into that same situation where the underlying value is really not important to me anymore. Now, what is the problem with this? Why did I say you may not like this answer? Because that's Jack Spierko's dream. I just described to you my dream property. My grandkids live on it with me, but they live far enough away that we don't have to involve ourselves in each other's lives and be kind of interfering when we don't want to. There's definitely room there to develop some level of tiny house community. I've got my pond. If I had real ponds on this property instead of my little garden ponds, I don't know if I'd ever leave. I would probably also upgrade my challenge. I'd probably keep the one I have and go out and buy myself another one because next year's the last year they're going to make it. I'd probably go out and buy myself at least an RT. If not, a, 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 you know, uh, going a little higher than that, and and get, you know, go, just go go for broke and get a Hellcat or something, and and have both of those as kind of like my little Jay Leno garage with them in it. Now, now, see, here's the thing: I'm giving you my dream. That level of windfall 
I'm going to buy my dream at least part way. I'm going to buy my dream and I'm going to leave enough cash to defend that dream until my kid's dead so that my son can have whatever's left behind and he can defend it till it's, till it's out. That's what I'm going to do. So then you have to ask yourself, what's your version of that? If you have that kind of coin. Because if the only goal is to make more money with it, it's like buying lottery tickets in a way. You've done it. You're good. And I think there is a point in our lives that hopefully we've worked long and hard enough that even if we don't get ourselves into the that level of buying your dream, you buy your dream in a defensible way. That's where I'm at. I don't have a 50-acre property with five ponds on it with a brand-new place that's built exactly the way I want it with my, my grandkids living on the other side of it and a tiny house community. But it's pretty damn good, and I'm pretty damn happy, and I'm pretty damn comfortable, and if I die here, I'll probably die pretty damn happy with a glass of mead in my hand on the porch. And hopefully with a dog I don't own yet. I hope I at least outlast all the ones I got. And so that's what I would do. And if I was still going to play the game, play the lottery game of trying to accumulate more points, no matter what I think about Bitcoin, I would still keep a significant amount of it as straight-up capital right now because I believe the, that bad things are coming. And I don't believe that because I'm Jack Spirico from the Survival Podcast. For years and years I've said it's not going to be that bad, not going to be that. Now we're in a position where it's going to be that bad. And the best thing you can be when things go south is cash heavy. And people say, well, that could be the end of the dollar. I'm going to tell you, yes, it could be. But that's not how current currencies don't end that way. Currencies end first with massive crashes in commodities and assets. And then massive crashes in currencies. Second. So there's this window of opportunity there to convert that currency into those capital assets. And we haven't had the capital asset crash yet. We either get that, or we get the other possibility I've been saying is Japan 30 years ago. We get a 30-year sideways skid. If you get that, then you don't get the massive buy opportunity, but you have plenty of time to pick and choose. So either way, I'm in the same position. But honest to God, you give me enough of a chunk of capital, there is a point where I buy or I solidify my dream lifestyle from this point until they plant me in the ground, or in my case, turn me into ashes. Because I don't need to occupy no real estate at all once I'm done with this show. And depending on how old you are, that might make a lot of sense, Marty, or it might not. But that's the most universal answer I can give for everybody. There's a point where you buy your dream or you solidify your dream. We've referred to that over the years as retirement. We've referred to it as retirement. And we've gotten to a point now where retirement means working till you're almost dead, trying to have some fun with what you got left, and trying to not outlive your money. That's not what I'm looking for in my life or my eventual someday retirement. Don't worry, guys. You hear me use that word a lot. Hey, is he going to go away? I just bought a dead gun lifetime. No, we're going to be here. I'm 50. I'm not, I'm not even close to retired. I already consider myself semi-retired. Now, 
I don't know, over the next 10 years, there might come a point where there's three shows a week. I'll probably do that for another 20 years, though. I ain't going nowhere, guys. Don't worry. Uh, this movement is far from done, and I'm far from... Uh, far, far away from ever walking away from my part in it. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's right, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I don't have a new item of the day for you. I'm rerunning the one from yesterday today, and that is the Pork King Good, Pork King Good, um, pork rind breadcrumbs. So they're not breadcrumbs at all. They're pork rinds that are ground up like breadcrumbs. Now let me tell you something about why I use these things. And it's in the write-up if you haven't read it yet. But whenever we had a call to use something like a breadcrumb, we wanted to put some crunch on it or do something with, like I said, like a meatloaf or a slider or a meatball where you want that binder. Dorothy and I, for a long time, have been using pork rinds. And what we would do is we would take a bag of them that maybe we left open a little bit longer than we should have. You know pork rinds. You open the bag, they're great. And then, like, a couple days later, no matter what you do, it seems like they're not. But they make good breadcrumbs. So we throw them in a neutral engine, grind them up. You put, like, a whole bag in there and you eat a little tiny handful of crumbs. And they were never, like, really evenly ground. You got really, really fine ones and really, really coarse ones and some chunks. And I found out I could buy these Pork King Good ones in a big, giant 12-ounce jar, and they were all ground perfectly. So I thought, well, I'll give them a try. And I'm like, I'm never grinding up my own ones again because they're just better. And they end up costing less, and they work better, and the flavors are really good. They have an original, they have an Italian, and they have a spicy Cajun. I haven't tried the Cajun one. I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, the Italian one, I didn't think I would be too hip on it because I thought it would be too over the top with the Italian. It's like the perfect universal one. It's got enough of herb flavoring in it, and whenever you're cooking with them, you're not just like eating a handful of them. Uh, it's not like uh, Progresso Italian breadcrumb over-the-top Italian. It, it's kind of perfect. One caution, I didn't say this yesterday. It is in the write-up. Salt is the main ingredient other than pork rind, and they are salty. They're not over-salted, but they're salty. They're salty enough that when you're using them in a recipe, You probably need to back your salt seasoning up a little bit. Done some amazing things with them already. Can't wait to try some more stuff. I'll be telling you about them in the future. But if you're a keto diet guy, man, this is the way to go. And if you're not, try them. They'll taste good anyway. Oh, I was supposed to tell you guys Grandma Spearco tricks yesterday to make the stuff stick better whenever you're doing any kind of battery breading, and I forgot about it yesterday. So I better go ahead and do that today, shouldn't I? Do you want to know how you get breading the stick on your stuff? Okay. You get your stuff ready to go in the morning. And you do whatever kind of dredge station that you're going to do in the morning. And you put your breading on the stuff in the morning. And you put the stuff on a paper plate or something like that, um, a dish, whatever, laid out flat one layer in the morning. And then you take it and you put it in the refrigerator And if it needs a little bit more, when you go to cook it, you can kind of roll it back through some dry crumbs again. If it's, It'll soak through sometimes and it get kind of sticky. But if you just do that, and I don't care if you're using cracker meal crumbs or if you're using pork rinds or any uh, uh, breading you make, if you bread your stuff in the morning and let it sit on the thing before you put it in the fryer. Now, this doesn't work with a batter. Like a dip batter, obviously, like a beer batter. that has. But if you're doing a breading, a coating flour, cornmeal, I don't care. If you do that, 
you will find your the, the, the ability of that stuff to stick, whether you're frying it, air frying, I don't care, will be about 100 times better. Now, that's the grandma spear coat trick. I learned that when I was a little kid. She was not a great meat cook. She ruined meat all the time because she was a Ukrainian immigrant. She grew up at a time when they, they, you know, a lot of meat wasn't refrigerated at all. They boiled the shit out of it. But baking, frying, stuff like that, she was a genius at. So I learned that from her. What I've added to it. I usually use egg as, as my coating, and then you roll in your breading. Put about a tablespoon of heavy cream, which is great for keto, by the way, in the egg when you whip it up. And you'll get a much thicker, gooier, kind of sticky uh, stuff on the... Th and then when you roll your breading, you'll get almost a glue-like adherence. And then if you let it sit, what's happening is it is kind of a glue. It's egg and cream glue. What happens when you let glue sit? It sets. And that's why it works so well. So now you know something you didn't know. You want another little trick? A great breading you can make? Take about two-thirds of these uh, crumbs and about one-third hard-grated, finely-grated Parmesan or Romano cheese. Good stuff. Not the crap that comes in the thing like they had on the pizza tables when you were a kid, the powder stuff. No, the real stuff. And do the same thing and try that. And then realize it's diet food. It's a proper human diet uh, recipe. So give that a try. I'll be giving you more examples in the future. Remember, you can always help support the show. You do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can certainly help us out by listening to us on a podcasting 2.0 app like the Breeze app or the Fountain app and sending us boostograms or sending us streams when you listen. If you think you're getting value, you can exchange it, to, uh, exchange it with us using Satoshi's, the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. And if you use the Fountain app, you even get paid a little bit of Satoshi's just to listen to shows. Then you can give it back to your favorite podcasters, or you can keep it and do whatever you want. And you can also consider becoming a member. The survivalpodcast.com forward slash members can teach you more about that. With that, I will catch you on Monday with another episode. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out? Just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way